no more small scale fishermen going out in their boat and buying, you know, catching stuff for their family or anything like that anymore mm. in Seychelles. This is, and uh, this is, I mean, it's the more you look into it, the more insane it sounds. Yeah. And this is all being backed by the UN as, as the way to conserve the planet. But ultimately what it's about is about controlling where people go and what they can do. They test this stuff in the developing world all the time. So like the digital mm -hmm. ID stuff we talked about earlier, they have been testing uh, a lot of the ID 2020 people, uh, which is a public private partnership about digital ID, um, have been testing that on stateless people between the border of Burma and Thailand who have like literally nothing. They don't even have like citizenship anywhere. Wow. And they're they're testing it on them and trying to like do all this biometric stuff uh, on right. ba newborn babies all the way up, yeah. you know. And you know, so they always test it out on people that don't know what's going on and don't really have a lot of agency or a lot of voice in their own in their own wow. government. And then there's they scale a, it globally for the rest of us. There's a great book titled "Seeing Like a State," and it talks about one of the main aims of statism is to increase the legibility of taxpayers. So you want to know who, where everyone is, what everyone's doing, right? You need to know all the economic interconnections, relationships, inflows, outflows, so you can tax all of it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. 
like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Whitney Webb, welcome to the What Is Money show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, just by way of quick introduction, you have a podcast called The Unlimited Hangout. Uh, you have a website by the same name, unlimitedhangout.com. And you are the author of a two-volume work titled One Nation Under Blackmail. Um. So I thought it would be fun and interesting and hopefully insightful for us to kind of jump into some of your work, uh, a little bit of your story, and just explore some of these big ideas um, that you're wrestling with and, and uh, some of the big events in the world that are, that are happening around those ideas. Um, now, for my audience that might not be familiar with you, do you want to just give us a little background on yourself? Like how you got into this line of work, how you got into journalism, um, and maybe just a little, a little bit of history on, on yourself from, from your past until now. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I left, uh, the United States, uh, about the same time I graduated, uh, from college. So I was 22. And after that, I did some foreign management stuff here and there, uh, worked in tourism. I I've been in South America. I should probably have said that. Hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, that was basically my background. I started doing a lot of blogging about, I guess, mainly environmental issues in Spanish, not in English. Um, and uh, at some point, the guy I was dating at where I live now in Chile uh, was like, you know, oh, this website you read all the time in English was uh, is looking for writers. Why don't you apply? And I was like, no one wants to read me. Uh, so I thought it was kind of a silly idea, but I, you know, whipped up some stuff um, and and sent it to them and uh, they they hired me, but they're not really around anymore. Uh, they had some sort of like, I guess, Facebook presence back before, you know, this was before the 2016 election censorship hammer dropped on Facebook. Mm. Uh, so there were a lot of different uh, pages that were mainly based on Facebook anyway. Like that's how all their reach was generated. And from there, I was uh, approached by Mint Press News, uh, and uh, which is based in the U.S., and uh, they hired me. And so I was their staff writer for a year. And then I uh, worked my way up to senior investigative reporter. And then um, around early 2020 or so, I ended up leaving and setting up my own website, which is called unlimitedhangout.com. Um, and uh, that's because I had started a podcast of the same name around the same time. Mm. Um, it sort of overlapped a little bit with my time at Mint Press and my decision to leave and, and go solo and, and, and whatnot. Um, so I guess that's basically... Uh, an all right summary, I guess. I don't know if you want me to go into more detail. I, I usually, you know, tend not to talk a lot about myself in interviews, but I'm happy to talk about whatever. So, yeah, would you describe yourself as an investigative journalist or what is this line of work that you 
How do you describe this yeah, line of work? That so, you're in? frankly, uh, in the past several years, like the term journalist has been, I don't want to necessarily say weaponized, but like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's been problematic for some people. Um, and a lot of this obviously has to do with, you know, mainstream media and uh, how more often than not they act up appendages of power than people holding power to account. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess, you know, I would say, um, I mean, most people describe me as an investigative journalist. I tend to describe myself as a writer and researcher because that's what I do. So I mm. tend to, um, you know, write a lot of people that write, for example, will sort of just take like one big event or, you know, mainstream media headline and make an article out of that. That's not what I do. I synthesize a lot of stuff, often either historical or current. I look at a lot of, um, you know, source documents or policy documents um, in, in series or, you know, in the case of the book, it was looking at a lot of historical um, uh, newspaper archives, um, you know, findings of, of Senate committees and commissions of yesteryear and all other sorts of um you know, I guess historical documents of of that nature and sort of piecing together what I uh, think really happened, you, you know, and so what's complicated too about journalism just in general is that I think a lot of people um, sort of approach it as I'm going to tell uh, people what to think in a sense. And I don't, you know, I, what I'm trying to do. And one of the reasons my website is, is named the way it is, is because I'm not trying, you know, if I come across information that doesn't necessarily like make sense to me at the time or fit the narrative that I sort of see forming up when I write a story, like I include it anyway, because it's up to the reader to take all this information, uh, follow the source links that I provide in almost every sentence of every article I do. Mm. for themselves and, and make their own conclusions with the information <clears throat> sort of uh, engage more with it because I think we have a problematic paradigm and it's true for politics as it is also true for journalism as I see it where people sort of look for sort of celeb they want to celebritize or like convert people into celebrities you know so there's mm. this idea in politics of like the political savior um, you know as long as we get the right person in the White House or in this position you know, everything's going to be fine. And so sometimes in journalism, you have like sort of the elevation of a celebrity mm. uh, journalist, and it's all about them and everything, you know, they told this thing that was really great and revealing and, and seemingly truthful. And let's listen to what they say. And they sort of get elevated in that same sort of way, they become like a celebrity type figure. Mm -hmm. And social media, I think has really aggravated uh, that paradigm. And I think it would be a much better paradigm um, to have people focused more on the information than the person delivering it. Right. Mm. So I try and give people uh, the resources to be able to engage that way with the information. Mm. So, you know, I don't know necessarily if most other people that are described as or self-defined as investigative journalists necessarily do that. Um, but that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. I write about stuff that I research and I provide the source links and how I came to those conclusions. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, have a vigorous debate about those conclusions if people want to. But, you know. Um, it doesn't really happen that often. That's great. That, that's, I mean, I, I would consider that to be journalistic integrity, right? You're just showing the, the sources of information that you gathered your findings from and then right. mm -hmm. obviously rendering an opinion on top of it, but referring people to the source so they can investigate for themselves. Um, yeah. I like this idea. So this idea of, I think you called it celebrate celebratization celebratization well, i don't know if a... there's an actual term for it this is how i like think of it in my head yeah. i see it a lot more in the political sphere this what i called the political savior yeah um 
paradigm but i think it gets applied to lots of stuff because you know especially in the u.s there's like the celebrity culture stuff particularly around hollywood but you see elements of it all over the place yes right? yeah there's Politics some kind of a media like a tribal instinct almost to want to look to an individual to lead us guide us inspire us something like that right but i think there's a problem in the u.s with like take and it, I, it's not exclusive to the u.s by any means but uh, with taking personal responsibility uh for where things are going you know a lot of people yeah. are willing to sort of outsource that right um to other people and i think it's it's a lot of the problems we find ourselves in right now uh could be reversed or at least ameliorated if people started to take you know have a little more agency absolutely and not just be looking to all these external people to you know fix things yeah absolutely what to believe and stuff mm -hmm. that's something we we are very um we advocate for heavily in kind of bitcoin circles this idea of taking as much personal responsibility as possible rather than trying to outsource yeah. your thinking to others right um and we all have to do it a little bit we can't be experts in every domain but you should at least understand that there's not going to be an individual that has all the answers right everyone's got their limited perspectives and biases etc um, and it does seem more useful to focus on the ideas rather than the, the individuals, because when you have an individual espousing certain ideas and they say one thing that is perhaps wrong, there's this, uh, inclination to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? It's like, oh, well, this guy said this thing yeah. that's wrong. So everything he, he or she has ever said is wrong. And that's dangerous yeah. too, right? Cause then you just end up with with not a well, lot it happens a lot the more like politically polarized or just more polarized in general things yeah. are so you know for example you know i've done a lot of work for example on the jeffrey epstein case and so mm. obviously well-known associates friends whatnot of epstein that most people know about right are two former presidents one being trump and the other being bill clinton so you know you talk about you know one and people be like oh yeah okay and then you talk about the other one it's like i can't believe anything this lady says anymore because <laughs> she's saying negative things about the guy that i like right um so you know it can it can again i mean there's a lot of different uh issues right now with uh modern political discourse um that are really setting us up for a uh, disaster, I think in, in some significant ways, but I mean, I think there's also been some progress to an extent. Um, but at the same time, there are also people um, that in, well, so intelligence agencies developed a tactic that they refer to as a limited hangout uh, mm -hmm. back several decades ago. And the idea was that it was a media asset that would uh, reveal a very significant truth, but be hiding the bigger story behind that. And people mm -hmm. would be so taken with this new like nugget of information that had previously been hidden. They wouldn't uh, even think that there was anything behind that or beyond that mm. and would just stop there. So essentially when the CIA, for example, knew they couldn't stop uh, something from coming out, they would control how it came out and would find uh, what would be shocking to the American public, but the least damaging for them, that particular facet, they would allow that to come out, but keep the rest uh, under wraps essentially. Right. Mm. And then once that person who they choose in media to reveal that does so people see them as uh you know sort of a revolutionary truth teller of some sorts and so mm. it doesn't matter from that point on that person can go and just spew propaganda or or say things that are are false or whatever and more people are going to be inclined to believe them because of that first mm. event so there's a lot of very complicated um uses of that um and so what i strive for as you know at unlimited hangout is to not do that at all and try and, and pick away at um 
you know the deeper parts of it even if i don't necessarily like understand what i'm um looking at it's ultimately for the reader to decide um but, but that being said though you know uh, people evolve over time as they study stuff, particularly power structures and events. It's hard to be a specialist in absolutely everything sure. that's ever happened ever, every country in the world. <laughs> of course. So, you know, you can write a story and you can spend like weeks researching and, and writing it, but it's possible that you will miss something, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, the hope is then that people would contact you to inform you uh, of what you miss. But ultimately, I think it's about the intention, right? Mm. Um at the end of the day, as, as a lot of things tend to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we, what was the inspiration for the title of the book? The one nation under blackmail. Could you just um, tell us a little bit about where that came from and what that means? Yeah. Um, so um, basically I wrote a series of four articles about the Epstein case around the time that Epstein was arrested the second time in 2019. And uh, it overlapped with the time he died as well. Um, and from that, I uh, was contacted by a publisher and sort of expanded it into a book. Um, so, um, in terms of the title, you know, I, it's not exactly, I mean, I've never written a book before, so, you know, it took me a while to sort of uh, find a title that I thought was engaging, but ultimately the theme of the book is about, um, uh, how blackmail has been used to corrupt our institutions long before Jeffrey Epstein. What I'm striving to show is that Jeffrey Epstein, contrary to the mainstream media narrative about him, uh, was hardly an anomaly, um, particularly when it came to what he was doing with young women. Uh, and, and in terms of, you know, sex blackmail allegations and, and things like that. Uh, but also that uh, Epstein was allowed to operate because he uh, entered into a very particular network with, uh, you know, uh, actors who were able to evade scrutiny or accountability for their actions. And the underlying theme through all of that is is financial crime. So you have throughout history and following this particular um network who of course evolve over time because i'm tracing them uh through quite a bit of of history but it's a lot of financial crime but there's also a lot of blackmail and a lot of that blackmail mm. um is sexual in nature like as we saw with the epstein case but not all of it is like there's efforts i talk about in the book through um you know people that were interested in attempting to acquire bcci and, and groups like that that wanted to financially blackmail u.s congressmen mm. by taking ownership of banks where a large amount of congressmen uh had open accounts and then could be able to track their finances and blackmail them that way hmm. and things like that. So there's been, you know, a lot of powerful actors throughout history who have sought to uh, corrupt our uh, democracy, uh, particularly elected officials and, and have them be easily controlled. And I argue in the book that one of the main, uh, I guess, entities responsible for that, um, uh, f that's responsible for those efforts is essentially a symbiosis between uh, elements of organized crime in the United States and uh, intelligence agencies, which mm. teamed up formally in the World War II era. And then in the post-war era sort of expanded and deepened that uh, collaboration. And you even have people like famous gangsters like uh, Sam Giancana, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, saying that the CIA and, you know, my organization are two sides of the same coin, essentially, you know. Mm. It's not um, 
you know, th these are both ent entities that work in covert worlds, and um, n we th we don't necessarily see them as being two sides of the same coin because we're told that you know the CIA and and other agencies like it are national security agencies, mm -hmm. so they're not motivated by money, mm -hmm. right? But <laughs> I don't think that's true, and I don't think I think history makes it really clear that that's not the case. They both have um you know you know they're both businesses ultimately right. at the end yes. of the day, and if you look at how the CIA what it came out of, you know, uh, how it was created, its precursor, the Office of Strategic Services, and the people that sort of began to construct what is now the U.S. national security state, um, extreme connections to Wall Street, the biggest banks and the biggest oligarchs in American history. So you could really argue that that uh, organization uh, is sort of like their secret police, like the secret police of American oligarchy. Wow. In a sense. And if you look at a lot of their early coups um, that they uh, promoted abroad, for example, um, probably a well-known example would be United Fruit uh, having a major role in prompting the CIA's o uh, illegal overthrow or coup d'etat um, against the democratically elected uh, government of Guatemala, uh, mm. because that uh, are I can't remember First names, last names, Arbenz was trying to nationalize uh, the banana industry. And mm. so, you know, this is an example of the early CIA going and overthrowing a government, not because of U.S. national security necessarily, uh, but because of their connections to capital. Right. Mm. And um, then over time, United Fruit's an interesting example because actually um, Leslie Wexner's mentors end up taking it over at some point, but it has a very odd uh, connection. You know, it sort of has one, that company historically has had one foot in the corporate world and one foot in the intelligence world. Uh, they had, they were allegedly involved in efforts uh, by the CIA to like the Bay of Pigs invasion that failed and things like that, lending ships to intelligence and all other sorts of other uh, intersections over the years. So there's a lot of companies that end up swimming around in that same web. So then you end up adding to this organized crime intelligence nexus. Right. You end up having sort of like the corporate world in there too. But ultimately what unites them is uh, a desire to engage in business that's technically illegal, but very right. lucrative. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, just like when you think of an organized crime racket, what is the ultimate goal of that? To expand it and keep it going for as long as possible. Yes. And so- <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's essentially what I'm trying to look at here. So obviously financial crime is a major a theme of it, and it's been used to loot the American public uh, and corrupt our public sector for a very long time. And it's it's very key uh, to understanding who Jeffrey Epstein really was and how he was allowed to do what he did. And that's why I would argue the mainstream media only focuses on his sex crimes from roughly 2000 to 2006. Uh, there's no interest really on the part of mainstream media in interrogating what Epstein was doing before the year 2000 uh, or any of his uh, other affiliations with the uh, financial criminality um, or organized crime or intelligence, really, despite the fact that we had um, when he was arrested the second time, it was essentially admitted by people involved uh, with his first trial and, and first arrest that, uh, you know, like Alex Acosta, who was Trump's secretary of labor for a time, uh, he was told that Epstein belonged to intelligence and to essentially back off that Epstein hmm. was above his pay grade. And so to sign off on this sweetheart deal. Wow. For example. And and so, but, you know, the intelligence connections to Epstein, mainstream media will tell you are just, you know, uh, speculative or it's, um you know, a conspiracy theory, which, of course, is the, the term that gets thrown around a lot when you talk about anything naughty that intelligence agencies may or may not have. Right. Been. Right. That <laughs> so. term was invented by intelligence agencies post JFK assassination. Right. To yeah. Discredit to discredit critics of the Warren Commission. Yeah, Correct. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this all rings true to me because you know 
as we talk about on the show often, we, I consider government to be basically the most organized crime in the world, right? It's yeah. all the revenues yes. governments <laughs> derive are through theft, violence, coercion. There's always these weird overlaps with more traditional forms of organized crime. Um, and to your point, the whole point is reaping those prohibition premiums or profits, right? And these businesses that are illegal for others to participate in. So there's very high profit margins. And if you can wrap that in this uh, shroud or agus of legality, right? This you know blatant criminality, but but it's somehow made legal or kept under the radar to where it's not mm -hmm. uh, enforced against. It's just a source of uh, massive profiteering, basically. Um, on the the blackmail front, so another thing we talk about on the show a lot is how the corruption of money actually corrupts humanity and human civilization. And when you were talking about the blackmail, it sounded like they were tracing the financial activities of congressmen or other targets to basically leverage that information to control them in some way or another to blackmail them. Do you think in this world we're going into where you'll have untraceable or anonymous money, or at least to be able to use money that's independent of your, say your state issued ID, would that inhibit the blackmail process if you can't just trace someone's financial activity as you can in a a, a legacy banking uh, system? Yeah, so so in theory, yes, but I think intelligence agencies, particularly the NSA in the U.S. and like Israel's Unit eighty two hundred, which is like their NSA equivalent, have invested a lot of time and money in trying to be able to trace money that's ostensibly anonymous in terms mm. of where it moves around. Uh, so for example, um, I can't remember that many specifics anymore at this point, but uh, you know, there's been some high profile uh, alleged uh, hacks, ransomware stuff in, in recent years, right? And a lot of those ransoms are paid in these anonymous, you know, currencies, Bitcoin or, mm. or other things, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but somehow the FBI like is able to find a lot of it really quickly. Mm -hmm. How did they do that if they weren't investing and in trying to yeah, um, yeah. There's, it's definitely that stuff down. So it's it's not easy to anonymize it for sure. And I think a, a lot of, uh, I guess, people that wish they had anonymized it maybe just did not. <laughs> and and you see the yeah. FBI seize it or or trace it. So there's a major effort not just to do that to corrupt the ability to have it anonymous, but there's mm -hmm. also the effort to illegalize anonymous money at the yes, same time for right? sure. to yeah. criminalize it. And I think, honestly, I've written a lot in the past about how there's a lot of suspect stuff with a lot of these uh, ransomware cases specifically mm -hmm. um, and how it's basically uh, that whole narrative about how ransomware, you know, uh, works today, if, you know, per the, official narratives about these events um that you know if we could stop bitcoin right then we mm -hmm. could stop cybercrime. Mm -hmm. and one of the main drivers of those types of policies and ideas is a public private partnership housed within the world economic forum that is called the partnership against Cybercrime. and it's mostly the big banks like wall street banks mm -hmm. um some intelligence linked to tech companies um, and then, of course, uh, major parts of our government, uh, the UK government and the Israeli government are there. Mm. So uh, in terms of the US government, what you have there is the FBI and the Department of Justice. I think in the UK, it's their national crimes agency. And then it's Israel's uh, national cybersecurity directorate or something like that. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, this is a very interesting collaboration. And because you have the Department of Justice and the FBI there, I think it's very important to pay attention to, specifically in the U.S. So they argue in the policy papers produced by this public-private partnership Mm. uh, that there needs to be an an elimination of online anonymity, period. And that's the only way to stop cybercrime. And so this ties into this whole... um, You know, they want to do that for uh, financial reasons, but also to stop hate speech and other things of that nature that they, you know, uh, sort of attempt to relate to cybercrime and ransomware. It's kind of a a tricky connection uh, to make, but, you know, they are trying to basically uh, argue for you know, regulation at, right. at scale. So they're trying to uh, have all their boogeymen interconnected and together and conveniently, you know, make the narrative that it will conveniently be wiped away. Um, you know, if, if this particular solution they're promoting is implemented right. uh, and it's very problematic ending online anonymity for a variety of reasons. And there's yes. been numerous efforts over the years. So back in the Obama administration, for example, there was the effort to create um, the driver's license for the internet, um, which would, you know, basically be, you'd have to have a state issued ID, whether a driver's license or a state issued ID card, and that would be connected to your government access. This this idea or policy has been folded into a lot of the digital ID white papers of the World Economic Forum and related Mm -hmm. organizations uh, who, of course, uh, you know, for example, are developing digital ID uh, infrastructure in Canada and the Netherlands, right? So it's Mm -hmm. not like this isn't Mm -hmm. having real world, um, impact and and in those white papers the idea is to have you know not just your internet access tied to your digital id uh but your ability to travel your vaccination history so like the whole vaccine passport thing uh, your ability to access any uh, government service your ability to access your um telecommunication network through your phone um your social media handles all of Mm -hmm. your you know what you surf on the web right all of that would be tied to your digital id and really what it is is um you know, a, a recipe for extreme and uh, extremely invasive surveillance, yeah. to say the very least. And there's been an interest in doing that for a very long time. And it does tie in with blackmail. Uh, well, mm-hmm. at least some of the stuff I wrote about in the book. So um, so what I referenced earlier about financial blackmail, that was an effort that ultimately failed by a man named Armand Hammer, who is the head of Occidental Petroleum, but has a lot of really weird intelligence connections. Like his father was a Soviet spy. Uh, he was allegedly affiliated with um, you know, different intelligences, including in the in the Soviet uh, sphere, uh, but was allegedly more closely enmeshed with, uh, you know, the Rockefellers and group that uh, groups that are trying have been trying historically to uh, implement global governance. Mm. whatever that means so he was Mm. particularly interested in acquiring um a bank that was later used to bring bcci into the u.s financial system because a lot of congressmen had accounts there and he wanted access to that for the purposes of financial blackmail Mm. so um you know there was an attempt to do that there but subsequently there was a scandal in the 80s called the promise software scandal and this was Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence working together. And Robert Maxwell, actually, Ghislaine Maxwell's father, played a major role in that scandal, um, which we can come to later. But essentially, there were two different versions of this promise software that were bugged with back doors. And so one was bugged by Israel and one was bugged by the CIA. 
And the one bugged by Israel was sold to national security agencies around the world, intelligence agencies. So Israel had a backdoor into basically everything they were looking at in real time. It was basically an intelligence coup uh, for the state mm. of Israel during this particular mm. period. And the person who did most of the sales selling it to those inte- intelligence agencies around the world uh, was Robert Maxwell, who was on the payroll of Israeli intelligence at the time. Uh, but on the flip side of that, you have the CIA version. And instead of being marketed mostly to national security agencies, this one was marketed to banks. And one of the main uh, companies that it utilized was uh, Systematics and some of these um, some banking software companies. And Systematics was very much tied up with the Clinton power nexus in Arkansas, as sort of the political kingmaker of uh, Clinton's early career was a guy named Jackson Stevens who owned Systematics. And the Rose Law Firm where Hillary Clinton worked and people like Vince Foster and Webster Hubble worked, uh, you know, systematics, they were the legal team, you know, for Mm -hmm. systematics. And uh, I think also like Foster and, and Hubble even had a stake in systematics at some point. But ultimately, this and this software marketed by systematics and other, uh, you know, interrelated subsidiaries uh, gets, you know, is running on banks like all over the world, including Mm. the World Bank at some point and is able Mm. to trace financial transactions. And this goes back to, you know, a very particular group that was using this for the purposes of blackmail also. Mm. And also using it to launder a lot of money because ultimately what Promise as a, as a software program was very effective at doing was tracking people and also tracking money. So it basically got sold, for example, to South American dictatorships uh, during Operation Condor, which again has a lot of CIA connections in and of itself, uh, but was you know using da- early databases using this kind of software to uh, scale up their uh, dissident elimination programs, essentially. Um, And and, yeah, so that's why that's how it was used to quote unquote track people. So you also have it, but the main other use of it was to track money and money flows. Mm. Right. So you can, you know, track that either to, you know, hide your money uh, or loot other people's money or find out who's doing what in the financial system. So suffice it to say, if there was an uh, an effectively anonymous currency at some point, it would be very disruptive to this blackmail model, right? Because you need yeah. I mean, if you yeah. could in, if you could actually ensure that it was anonymous, then yeah, and right. if people were allowed to use it. But I would wager, as we're seeing now, that the state would attempt to step in and illegalize that. Yes. Technology. Yes, they absolutely will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, will and are, I would say, to yeah. a large extent. What right. do you mean? So in your writings, you often use this phrase, deep politics. And it sounds like that might be a lot of what you're talking about here. Could you just unpack that term? What do, what do you mean by that? So I think the person who first used this term may have been, there may have been someone before him, uh, but like Peter Dale Scott, who's done a lot of, you know, works, I guess you could say about interrogate, interrogating power in the United States and how it's affected our history over time. Um, and so I guess I would say, you know, so there's, so what's the opposite of deep politics, right? So that would be superficial politics. So that's would be like what you see on, you know, CNN and mainstream media about the narrative regarding how power actually functions and sits in the United States. So per that narrative, who controls the country? Uh, per, it would be Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. who makes mm-hmm. all of the decisions, uh, you know, and, you know, that's a pretty fair response mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. juggle at that, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the idea that, um, you know, a lot of those narratives put out for the public aren't necessarily accurate. They're what the, they want the public to believe about how power 
operate. So in mm. contrast, I would say that deep politics is about interrogating where that power actually lies and where it sits and what it um, uh, aims to accomplish, you know, mm -hmm. what it does, uh, what it has done over time, what it aims to do now. I mean, you know, if you're trying to figure out what's actually going on right now, uh, specifically with the intent of trying to figure out what's going to happen a year or two from now or like where things are progressing or you know where we're being driven ultimately you have to understand who's who's driving the car mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. who's, who's running things um and and you know how those people or those structures have you know operated how they developed how they've evolved and and where they're taking us now because you know if you're going to be watching cnn for those answers you're not going to find it right right so yeah, no, well said. I've often, my view is that I think JFK was probably the last real president we had in the United States, someone that actually tried to make changes to the prevailing power structure. And I don't know sure. to what extent he was compromised, not compromised, but uh, there was executive order 11110, where he was basically going to take away the exclusive power of the Federal Reserve to issue currency and restore some of that to um, the U.S., right, to citizens. And shortly after he was assassinated, obviously, um, not necessarily um, saying that that was why there were a lot of people he had mad at him yeah, at that he, time. He'd angered a lot of people. Yeah. So, and um, on both sides, like you said, mm -hmm. on the organized crime side, he had the mafia that was upset with him and also inside yeah. central bank mm -hmm. insiders and the government. So he had a lot of, a lot of, and, and the central right intelligence good. agency. Right. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, also the state of Israel was mad at him because he said, uh, no nukes for you, um, yeah. which they didn't like. So right. all sorts of, uh, different actors who were very unhappy with him. Sure. Yeah. So ultimately, um, what's interesting about blackmail and JFK is that there were efforts very early on to try and control him through sex. Uh, actually he was targeted by a, uh, blackmail ring that, uh, was very much tied up with the UK aristocracy that had previously just a few years before brought down the British government of Harold Macmillan, mm. uh, through what is known today as the Profumo affair. Uh, Profumo was the last name of the secretary of war in, in Macmillan's cabinet that was, uh, sexually blackmailed essentially, uh, because it was, a, it would have stopped, uh, it was an effort to sort of end cold war hostilities that Profimo was involved with. And so the sex blackmail thing sort of, wow. uh, destroyed any sort of efforts there because it involved some, uh, Soviet attache, uh, based in Britain. I can't remember all the details. Mm. Sorry about that. But essentially one of the women from that, uh, group was brought over by a British man to New York and she slept with JFK sometime between the time he was elected president and before he was actually inaugurated. Mm. So he was targeted in that particular span of time, which is pretty interesting. Um, and that, but then she was caught, right? And there were efforts and there were sort of inklings in mainstream media hinting that there was a connection of Kennedy to the Profimo people. Mm -hmm. the Profimo affair people, uh, but it ended up not going anywhere. It's very odd. So this woman whose name, uh, at least the name at the time she was using was Mariella Novotny. Um, she was caught, right, for what she was essentially doing, but she was spirited out of the country uh, with apparent CIA help. And the FBI had her client list because it wasn't just John F. Kennedy that she was um, taken over to entice, I guess you could mm -hmm. say, right? Mm -hmm. Her client list is held by the FBI, but they destroy it. Weird, right? So I don't know. A lot of parallels between some of the stuff you see more. Yeah. 
it's client list disappearing left and right. Let me so given the centrality of money and all of this uh, mm-hmm. blackmailing and corruption, what is the role of central banking, central bank shareholders? Like, is that the nexus of power in your view? That the the people that control the money effectively are pulling the strings in a lot of this, or, or how do you how do you view the role of central banking in in the locus of that uh, deeper political power structure so obviously it's it's very much um a key part of it so i guess you know i I suppose it would depend on the extent to the central bank in the country you're talking about not Mm -hmm. necessarily a lot but you know in the u.s the federal reserve system i think most people know and i'm sure your audience knows the uh outsized role that private banks and wall street play in the central banking system in the u.s Mm -hmm. right so um if you look at the central banking system then as an extension of those banks, and then you see the other things that those banks do, for example, their role in creating the CIA and the OSS and these, these entities, Mm. you know, they take on a very different dimension. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, in terms of, you know, wall street, there's actors there who have an outsized role in affecting um, us, uh, you know, monetary policy and also uh, you know, what happens in these more shadowy financial worlds to a Mm -hmm. significant degree. Right. Um, And um, at the end of the day, you know, I would say that a lot of the power ends up sitting there. (laughs) Right. Uh, But, you know, obviously it goes beyond that. I mean, I think what we're seeing uh, when you, when you start to look into this type of stuff a lot, it becomes quite clear that there's a lot of trans national networks of capital so Mm -hmm. it may look like a lot of this is necessarily based in wall street but you have other hubs of you know that are connected to that of those types of activities um and a lot of it seems to have to do uh you know with banking uh, banking centers so a lot of people have written for example about the outsized role uh of the city of london for example Mm -hmm. um and then um you know i guess it looks like hong kong is becoming a or has become, you know, a pretty big, you know, financial center for various reasons. And um, a lot of my work on the 1990s stuff that Epstein was, was apparently involved in and stuff looks at Hong Kong a a good bit. And there's definitely a lot of very strange things there, but it seems to involve a lot of UK and US stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, obviously other countries to an extent, but you end up, it's really branched out to a very significant degree. Um, A good example too, would be, you know, someone like, um, uh, Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone Capital. Mm. So he's super influential, for example, in in in, in China. Uh, he mm. there's pictures of him. Um, I think the number two. Well, they might there might have been a power shuffle since I read this particular article um, talking about it. But um, at the time that article was published, which was like four years ago, maybe um, the number two guy in in the Chinese government in his office has a picture of him of like Stephen Schwartzman. Uh, he and Steve Schwartzman hanging about and and he and Henry Kissinger hanging out, you know? So there's like these, you know, different connections that don't really uh, fit with the more superficial narrative of how things are really working. So if you believe, you know, the more superficial narrative um, of, of power, you know, it's all about nation states and it's this nation state versus this nation state. Right. Mm -hmm. So China's our adversary nation, but then it doesn't really make a lot of sense why you'd have, 
um, certain people, certain investments being made. And so, you know, that's why people scratch their heads a little bit, you know, with maybe COVID-19 stuff, mm-hmm. for example, you know, all the the hub, the, the, the concerns about mm-hmm. like the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, it turns out the Pentagon was funding that. So if it's our, you know, adversary nationwide, is the Pentagon pouring money into research happening over there? Mm-hmm um you know it's 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 Mm -hmm. weird uh, at times and so one of the weird things that i was writing about in the book about the 1990s that involved um the clinton administration and and apparently epstein uh was related to a massive very illegal tech transfer specifically of military technology uh, from the u.s military to china by rather illicit means and this is rolled up in this uh scandal that later becomes remembered at least by conservatives as china gate um mm. but i think it's kind of more of a, a misnomer because a lot of the people that were responsible for that tech transfer uh are worse the same people that were uh involved in iran contra like mm. a decade before and that mm. was all about stopping the communists and then in a decade mm. later <laughs> they're you know helping the communists right. so you know ultimately it's about selling looking- weapons Right. Yeah. yeah. So ultimately, you're looking at that and the superficial politics narrative doesn't make any sense. But the deep politics narrative does when you realize that it's a particular power faction in our national security state mm-hmm. that all they care about is advancing their own money and power mm-hmm. and they'll make a deal with anyone. Right. Yes. No, brilliantly said it. I've often thought that nation state level is kind of a low resolution depiction of power structures because the truth is. Right. There are distributed power factions everywhere. They're ruthless, right? They'll they'll do a deal with anyone that can pay. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup. 
including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove. And make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Privacy is a very important part of freedom. And a VPN, a virtual private network, is what lets you be private online. Protecting yourself online is increasingly important as data and identity theft are more and more rampant in our world today. Fortunately, NordVPN is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. Uh, it's incredibly easy to use. You just click one button to mask your internet traffic and even decide which country that it's coming from. Uh, you don't need to be a tech genius to use it and you can protect up to six devices at a time with NordVPN. So to get your exclusive offer, go to nordvpn.com slash breedlove today when you sign up. So you've been writing this series recently um, titled Sustainable Debt Slavery. And I think you mentioned uh, you're currently working on a new installment, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Blue Economy, I think think you said the name was. Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, the theme of that series and, and perhaps the new piece that you're, you're currently working on? Yeah. So uh, this the series is called Sustainable Slavery. It's essentially a, a, a criticism of uh, the SDG policies, uh, which, you know, the SDGs are sustainable development goals, and there's 17 of them. And the 17 sustainable development goals together is Agenda 2030, which is developed mm -hmm. by the UN, along with other stakeholders, which include the World Economic Forum, which formally teamed up with the UN for this and other related purposes in uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, and in promoting the public pro public private partnership model that the WEF is, you know, uh, they call themselves the premier promoter of that model globally, the WEF. <laughs> so, um, 
so essentially uh, what we're, so I'm co-writing the series with Ian Davis, who's a colleague of mine uh, based in Britain. And we're basically trying to uh, look at the SDGs uh, and scrutinize them. Because if you, if you go to the UN website, for example, and you, you look at, you know, their agenda 2030 webpage and all of this, uh, you will see the sustainable development goals there. And, you know, uh, some of them sound really nice on the surface, right? Uh, end world hunger, um, you know, income equality, um, you know, uh, conserve the oceans, mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So, uh, but it stops looking so rosy once you dig deeper. So ultimately each of these goals, um, you know, you look under them, the UN is sponsoring very specific public private partnerships or very specific organizations to deliver those goals. Okay. And uh, the UN is actively promoting uh, that countries, specifically countries in the developing world, take on massive amounts of debt in order to finance this transformation of our world, as they describe it. Because ultimately, the SDGs, as described by the UN, are about transforming our world. So a major part of this is about transforming the financial system, Mm -hmm. um, but also really it's about transforming every aspect of our lives. From the most intimate things like family planning, how many kids you can have, uh, you know, all the way to, you know, much bigger macro stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the goal is to basically have every aspect of your life overhauled um, by the year 2030, or at least have the uh, uh, the mechanisms to deliver that transformation in place by 2030, I guess I should wow. say. Right. So um, you start to look into them. They become very uncomfortable very quickly. So the first installment in the series, uh, you know, we talked about the last sustainable development goal, which is number 17. And it's about delivering or or creating partnerships to to deliver the SDGs or I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like that. So it's all about public private partnerships um, and uh, promoting. They say that uh, all of these partnerships uh, are net are the only way we can deliver uh, things like macroeconomic stability and and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, if you, if you'll give me a second, I'll uh, pull up that article to, uh, make a little couple references here. So they basically say, so you click beyond the short like phrase definition uh-huh. of the SDG, and then you'll get like a sentence or two, a slightly longer description. Uh-huh. And so in one of those for for this one for seventeen, it talks about essentially multi-stakeholder partnerships uh, will work together to create what they call macroeconomic stability, and this is a prerequisite for implementing all of the SDGs. Uh, but as we note in the article, microeconomic stability has been uh, redefined uh, by the UN. Uh, so now it doesn't mean like, you know, full employment, stable economic growth and and low inflation. Now it means creating fiscal space. And OK, so fiscal space, even per the U.N., doesn't actually like have a definition. Um, so it's um, basically more taxpayers. So essentially, so according to like the UN Department for Economic and Social Affairs, it boils down to um, the estimated or projected debt sustainability gap. So you can see here that they're basically creating a word salad. There's like words within words within words, and they've (laughs) redefined a lot of the words, right? So multi-stakeholder partnerships, which is like the WEF public-private partnership model, yeah, we'll t- together need to create macroeconomic stability as a prerequisite for Agenda 2030. 
Yeah. But macroeconomic stability, they've redefined to be fiscal space. And fiscal space is actually about the debt sustainability gap. And so um, and what is that, that word is supposed to be the difference between a country's current debt level and its estimated sustainable debt level. So now they've created this whole ideology of what is sustainable debt. Yeah. And this is where you start. It starts to seem weird. You know, if this is really about sustainability, how does this make any sense? Because the way most people think of sustainability, sustainable debt, what? Like, right. that's that's silly. So, um, yeah, then you start to realize that everyone running this for the UN is a central banker or Wall Street banker. Right, and then you're right, like, oh, right, yeah, right, okay. right. And I'm, I'm the quote from, I think it's John Adams comes to mind that there's two ways to conquer a country. One is by the sword. One is by debt. So exactly. when you talk about maximizing debt sustainability, I would interpret that as saddling these emerging markets with debt to conquer or control them. Yeah. Um, wow. That's a. So, uh, so basically what this UN sustainable uh, development goal is about is saying that countries can borrow as much as they want to finance sustainable development spending, irrespective of actual economic conditions. So it's basically delinking what actually macroeconomic stability is uh, from the term. I mean, it, it's it's very insane. Yeah. So um, this is all towards centralizing power, right? I mean, the more... Right. So debt, I'll, yeah. I'll get there. So yeah. ultimately, um, you have the World Bank, you know, writing about SDG 17 saying openly, debt is a critical form of financing for the sustainable development goals. So debt is going to be a key vehicle for essentially forcing the implementation of those SDGs. So then you start to look at old models where this essentially uh, where debt was used for this purpose. So what what is the current system uh, that's used to uh, force the developing uh, the global South or you know developing countries uh, to enact policies they normally wouldn't enact you know with debt, right? So it's usually the IMF and the World Bank, um, the you know that particular those particular organizations uh, coming in and doing debt rescue packages and all of that stuff. And, you know, in order to receive the bailout or, you know, the money they need to pay off their debt and not be insolvent, they have to implement these structural changes, these policy changes. Right. 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 Yeah. So this is why, I mean, I, I don't know if you or people in your audience have seen it, but at the uh, COP27 meeting, and I think also the year previously at COP26, you have Larry Fink of BlackRock uh, saying, you know, if we want to get serious about climate change, we have to reimagine the charters of the IMF and the World Bank. <laughs> so what is he talking about? He is talking about uh, uh, the plan of a UN-backed organization that's related to all of this called GFANS, which is the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Uh, Larry Fink is a principal at GFANS. The people that run GFANS uh, are essentially uh, Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire, and uh, Mark Carney, who is a former Goldman Sachs banker, former central banker for the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada. So these are the guys, you know, running the show here and what G fans put forth in its policy papers, um, at least one of the ones they had out last year is that what they hope to do uh, for the alleged purpose of reaching net zero more quickly is to reimagine the IMF and the World Bank by merging them with the private banking interests that compose G fans, creating a new system of global financial governance, their term. 
and uh, essentially uh, eroding national sovereignty by forcing uh, countries to establish business environments that are friendly to the interest of GFANS members. Um, and a lot of these GFANS members are developing all these different uh, financial vehicles and, and organi organizations uh, to, you know, supposedly deliver net zero, but ultimately, you know, what you're what they're doing is um, either establishing, uh, you know, um, updating the power grid, but they're going to own the power grid, for example, and, and things of that nature, sort of these like development projects that are framed as uh, sustainable, but, you know, they have owners at the end of the day. And uh, some of it is also related to, you know, under the guise of environmentalism, what is essentially uh, financializing the natural world. So turn, creating a new asset class, um, you know, where different parts of the natural world can essentially be uh, sold and, you know, treated as, as financial commodities. Right. Uh, and this happened in a big way, I guess, a year or two ago. The New York Stock Exchange teamed up with a, an entity called the Intrinsic Exchange Group or IEG, which is sponsored itself by the Rockefeller Foundation. And they created a new asset class called um, natural, um, um, no, I forget exactly the term for it, sorry, but they created natural asset corporations, which you can now trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm. And a natural asset corporation, the first step, you can look at the Extrinsic Exchange Group's website and their like infographics. It's very telling. Um, they basically say, first you identify like a natural asset that you think you can make money off of, basically. Then you make a an NAC, a natural asset corporation, and you take you know ownership of it with local stakeholders. And uh, then you go public and have an IPO. So this is about, and they describe the opportunity, their word, the opportunity of this uh, by beginning to monetize what they refer to as nature's economy. Mm. So they do a side-by-side -side of the projected amount of assets in nature's economy versus the existing economy. And nature's economy is like five times bigger, right? Based on their calculations. So in my opinion, this is a way to just really much... Uh, in, a, in a very significant and crazy and damaging environmentally way, expand the existing casino of our current financial system wow. uh, by just pumping in a bunch of new, uh, by basically just adding new uh, assets to it to the tunes of like trillions and trillions of dollars. But it's stuff that has never before been included in the financial system. And it's really crazy. So this is stuff like um, rivers and lakes that used to be part of the ostensible global commons right so now that's going to be owned by a natural asset corporation but it doesn't necessarily and they're framing it as stuff that's going to protect these uh you know natural features right but here's an example of what a natural asset corporation can do so for example i live in the andes in chile so let's see a natural asset cor uh, corporation uh decides to uh take ownership or you know by for the purpose of conservation um, a group of three mountains in the andes right and let's say that they know that um you know there's copper there some other sort of metal that tends to be found in the andes so you know they uh, are there to ostensibly manage it and conserve it but okay so this mining company comes along and says hey natural asset corporation would really like to mine uh, one of these three mountains and set up a mine there um and then you know based on how the system is set up, they can go and find some offset. This is how carbon markets work too, right? You can find some sort of offset for the environmental damage that's going to be caused by your mining project uh, somewhere half, you know, halfway around the world. 
And then that makes it okay per the system to go and then mine this mountain that's supposed to be under conservation. Mm. So it's just like a, it's just a, it's a giant redistribution grip. scheme. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Well, mining is such a key part of the world that the SDGs hope to develop, like this electrical vehicle revolution um, mm. and and all of these other all of this other like high tech infrastructure, not just for cars, but like for smart cities and stuff uh, it essentially necessitates that all the world's cobalt and nickel and lithium, it's all uh, mined. And even with estimates um, you know, of how many devices would be needed in, in just a few years after that type of system starts to get rolling. There may not even be enough on the planet mm. of those minerals to produce those 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 goods. You know, so um, you know, it's really crazy, especially when you consider how uh environmentally damaging mines are. Uh, it's a major issue in South America and it's a mm. major issue in Africa. And of course, these are the very continents most targeted by, you know, GFANS and, and these other entities. And a lot of the same people involved in GFANS, uh, for example, Mike Bloomberg, is part of a consortium of billionaires uh, like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and people like that that have a mining company called Cobalt Metals that is trying to get all of the world's lithium and cobalt and nickel and everything needed to make this stuff. So ultimately, this is about, I would say, concentrating the wealth in the hands of a very few under mm. the guise of sustainable development. And you can, I mean, this is just talking about SGG 17 and G fans. I mean, you start to look at some of this other stuff. Like I'm recently, like you mentioned, I'm doing a piece. It's not uh, going to be out for a couple of weeks because I'm uh, about to lose childcare for my kids because it's summer vacation here. Um but it's about, you know, essentially what they call the blue economy and blue carbon markets and all of this stuff and debt for climate swaps. So essentially, you know, in one of these examples, um, it's it, the leader of this. One of the leaders of this, I guess, is called NatureVest. And this is uh, the impact investing arm of the Nature Conservancy, which until relatively recently was run by Henry Paulson, who was George W. Bush's Treasury Secretary and former head of Goldman Sachs. Uh, the guy that said, we'll declare martial law if you don't bail out Wall Street in 2008, that guy. So uh, NatureVest is trying to do this stuff. I think they've done it only so far in Seychelles in Africa and Belize in Latin America. And it's this debt for, uh, I can't remember if they call it debt for climate or debt for conservation swap, but it's basically a remaking of the debt for land swap, which existed long before uh, the SDGs and was particularly marketed to like Argentina, for example, by the IMF. Um, you know, we'll forgive your debt if you give us like a big chunk of Patagonia where all these resources happen to be and stuff. So it's essentially like a land grab recipe at the end of the day. And, um, you know, so they'll forgive X amount of debt and there's all this financing, there's all these insurance people brought in, and then the country has to agree to a marine spatial plan, they're called. So the one in Seychelles hasn't been implemented yet. It's implemented this year. So Seychelles is like an archipelago nation, like an islands group of islands. Mm -hmm. That's one nation in Africa. And this is going to cover 100% of its territory, territory, this plan that was created by the Nature Conservancy for Seychelles, hmm. right, as part of wow. its this debt conversion process. And it's going to divide Seychelles territory into one of two categories. One is um, a zone that prohibits any sort of extractive human use. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't go there, you can't do anything with it, you have to leave it alone. And then the other one is limited use. And for example, it allows catch and release fishing. So under this plan, commercial fishing in Seychelles basically ends. 
specifically if it's not, you know, run by the state or anything like that, the way it's they talk about it on the Seychelles, like government website, the official website is saying, you know, it would just be tourism and catch and release fishing, you know, no more small scale fishermen going out in their boat and buying, you know, catching stuff for their family or anything like that anymore mm. in Seychelles. This is, and this uh, is, I mean, it's, it's, and it wasn't even all of their debt that was forgiven. Right. And a lot of this is financed by weird stuff. They set uh, up like, um, a tr- uh, some climate trust, um, and all these different funds. Some of it involve multi, uh, you know, some of these development banks, some of it involves, uh, private banks or the right. central bank of Seychelles and things like that, you know, are ultimately all involved in this but it's all i mean the more you look into it the more insane it sounds yeah. and this is all being backed by the un as as the way to conserve the planet but ultimately what it's about is about controlling where people go and what they can do um and surveilling them you know another one of these programs in the blue economy is about getting uh fishermen and very poor and mostly illiterate fishermen like dependent on apps with like pictures for mm-hmm. how they sell their pro, uh, how how they sell their what they catch, mm-hmm. so like they claim to connect them with markets and stuff, and you know maybe that works for a time, but a lot you know the idea is to scale these models, and the people developing these apps even say that scale these models for use globally. So the idea is to have you know it all on you know on the blockchain, all sur- all visible, all surveillable, what people are catching and what they aren't, and if you're not using one of those apps and you can't fish that's essentially like the policy framework being set up here is uh, it's overwhelming and they test this stuff they test this stuff in the developing world all the time so like the digital mm-hmm. id stuff we talked about earlier they have been testing uh, a lot of the id 2020 people uh, which is a public private partnership about digital id um have been testing that on stateless people between the border of burma and thailand who have like literally nothing they don't even have like citizenship anywhere wow. and they're they're testing it on them and trying to like do all this biometric stuff uh on right. ba- newborn babies all the way up yeah. you know and you know so they always test it out on people that don't know what's going on and don't really have a lot of agency or a lot of voice in their own in their own wow. government and then there's they a, scale it globally for the rest of us there's a great book titled seeing like a state and it talks about one of the main aims of statism is to increase the legibility of taxpayers. So you want to know who, where everyone is, what everyone's doing, right? You need to know all the economic interconnections, relationships, inflows, outflows, so you can tax all of it. And that, that sounds very much like yeah. what, what this is, right? You just need to understand. That's, that's definitely part of it. But the other part is related to that. It's not just about making sure everyone has to pay tax, like all the little people have to pay mm. tax. And, you know, we're seeing that in the U.S. right now with their efforts to, like, beef up, beef up uh, the IRS. But ultimately, <sighs> it's about control and it's about surveillance. And this yes. is like a major theme here. Um because you have to factor in AI too. They don't just want to, they want to use AI to analyze all of this data that they're sucking up. Um, not just for the financial purpose of of tax, but also to predict what will happen. So a lot of this AI is very predictive or mm. they want it to be predictive. And you have a lot of these companies behind a lot of this stuff, like Palantir, for example, yeah. very much involved in predictive policing. Uh, and a lot of people don't know under the Trump administration, pre-crime as a Department of Justice policy was, was created uh, by William Barr when he wow. was attorney general under Trump in a program called uh, DEEP, which is an acronym for something like disrupt 
uh, early engagement, uh, something, I can't remember the whole Mm -hmm. acronym, uh, but it was essentially justified as stopping mass shooters before they can strike. And at the same time, uh, Jared Kushner, uh, was promoting an idea in the Trump administration called HARPA, uh, which would be a health DARPA equivalent DARPA being the Pentagon's research arm that's involved in a lot of really crazy stuff. And the idea was to uh, data mine social media activity and then use an AI algorithm to analyze those posts and those direct messages and whatever else is sucked up uh, for early signs of neuropsychiatric violence. Wow. And then basically use deep to go after those people to stop mass shootings and that did not get approved under trump but biden approved harpa but called it instead arpa h put the h uh-huh. at the end so it's arpa dash h and he put the lady that used to uh be affiliated with the cia's darpa equivalent which is called i arpa in charge uh-huh. of that. so wow you know, you know that's ultimately where a lot of this is going. It's not just about seeing what's happening in real time. They want to anticipate what's going to happen. And if you look at a lot of these same structures, how they've developed um, the surveillance programs, a great example is uh, what they tried to do after 9-11 with total information awareness or TIA it has like the craziest logo in the history of U.S. government programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because it's like the pyramid with the eye, like beaming light out covering (laughs) all of planet Earth. I'm not even kidding. Like, you can go look it up. It's wild. So what they wanted to do was stop terror attacks before they happen. The same stuff that Harpa was pitching, right? Or was pitched to be. Um, uh, But but by uh, illegally surveilling Americans. And they later claimed it was going to be they were tried to rename it terrorist information awareness mm-hmm. to try and be like oh well you know we're yeah we're surveilling everyone but we're just looking for terrorists because obviously right. the name total information awareness means like everything right but a key component of that wasn't just you know trying to see if violent acts will happen in the future in pre-crime there was also a sub program called biosurveillance and this mm. was about predicting before they happen naturally occurring pandemics and also uh bioterrorist activity so like a bioterrorist like was alleged to have happened in the 2001 anthrax attacks releasing something they'd be able to know before anyone got sick and stuff you know this is all uh, and there's whole companies like in the ai market that are built around delivering this to companies and stuff but one of them which teamed up with rhode island during covid19 and is based in israel and has a lot of israeli um intelligence connections if you believe the company who has never had these statistics audited by anyone independent they say the accuracy of their ai is like 73 percent so that's not very high is it no that's when you're dealing with major decisions like that and that's if you believe them it's probably not any better than flipping a coin and so how much of decision making and this pre-crime stuff and whatever is being you know, outsource to AI algorithms that aren't actually that good or that accurate. Well, the hubris, There's a lot of corruption in the industry. So, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, the hubris inherent to all of this uh, future predicting pre-crime. So, I mean, this is just, what's the movie? Minority Report, right? Like it's totally. very, uh, I don't know, evil, but also hubristic in that we think we can see forward in time through a complex system. Like that's, that's, mathematically impossible um but if you can convince people i guess right via narrative or whatever that this thing works 
then you could just start locking people up for things they haven't done. And that's fucking crazy. Yeah. And I think a lot of what we're going to see in AI is actually going to be that it's going to be hype and a psyop basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And and to get people to agree to give AI a lot more power than it should have. So for example, you have this open AI thing that's backed by Elon Musk and the Microsoft just bought a 49% stake. And there's all this hype about jet, you know, chat GPT, mm. uh, its platform. And now this uh, chat bot is passing medical exams. It's passing bar exams, right? And there's wow. this effort too by um, different entities. I think Peter Thiel is backing a particular company that produces an AI lawyer, um, you know? So, wow. I mean, there's an obvious uh, like creep here, yeah, like mission yes, creep, yes. I guess you could say, to have us outsource a lot of jobs that we didn't think originally would be on the chopping block with AI, right? right? You know, people right. need it. Oh, it's factory jobs and all of this stuff. Well, not exactly. It's a lot of other like, you know, professionals that right. are on the chopping block too, but are how accurate and how good are those algorithms and whether they're their limitations? I don't think it's properly explored because a lot of these companies uh, in, in the AI field, you know, it's big tech and big tech yeah. is intimately linked, arguably fused with our national security agencies. Yeah. So uh, Facebook has a long history with DARPA. Uh, Google has a very long history with the CIA. So does Palantir and a lot of these other companies and they're, you know, so big drivers of of that particular market and of course microsoft you know is yeah pretty clear their affiliations as well so the confluence Um, of all these things as you mentioned earlier is this erosion of national sovereignty seems like a tendency towards one mm -hmm. locus of power or or one or a few perhaps loci of power in the world uh you know, in my mind, it, admittedly, it's kind of like a money nerd slash Bitcoiner. I don't see any other action we can take other than really holding wealth in something like Bitcoin that actually empowers individual sovereignty as a counterforce against the erosion of national sovereignty or the centralization of, of wealth. What in your mind, like what other actions can we take as a counterforce against this centralizing tendency? Uh, I I assume you would say voting probably doesn't work so well. No, uh, what, what, <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree does, strongly. Yeah. What else can we do? Right. So you know what you mentioned about about Bitcoin, like that's a step towards sovereignty and your finances. But if you think about like how is one truly free from the system or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, it's not just about money, is it? Because money is what like we ultimately use to buy the things we need. But what if mm-hmm. you can produce the things you need yourself? Or what if you could be in a community that produces mm-hmm. those needs or can assist you with them? Uh, if you don't have money or something like that, right? right? Because there have been times, obviously, at some point in human history, I mean, it's money is a human invention, right? But humans existed before money. Yeah. So, you know, what do we need to survive? Well, I, food, shelter, all of that stuff. You know, if you are are worried about the government going after Bitcoin or you want to hedge your bets, not have all your, you know, eggs in one basket, it would make sense to invest in a homestead, in a house, in gardening, or even if not, if you can't do that, you can, you know, put money into like farming co-ops or like local farms that can produce it and they'll supply you in times of, you know, economic crisis or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to to look at it, but ultimately it comes to developing your local community, whether it's like your local homestead or like your neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere where you can actually, as one person, like affect actual change. 
Mm. which is going to be on the local level. So, you know, unfortunately, especially, you know, it's not exclusive to the U.S., but I think it's true in the U.S. Like, you're not really going to get any help with what's coming from the state mm. or national government. Uh, maybe you have a better shot at affecting change in local government for mm. a window of time, uh, but that's not guaranteed either. And, mm-hmm. you know, historically, in times of extreme crisis, people have to lean on each other. And the more prepared your community is, whether, you know, I, I don't really care how people define the size of a community, but it's definitely not going to be that big, any bigger than a county. It's going to be smaller mm-hmm. than that. You can, you know, set up a system where you're resilient and, and independent of the system to the greatest mm-hmm. degree possible. And they can't necessarily make that illegal. You know what I mean? Right, right. So self-sufficiency, right? Like uh, being able to generate your own power, your own food, shelter, et cetera. If you can Uh, produce your own needs, you don't need to depend on anyone else for it. So you have have sovereignty. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Unfortunately, that's a much more costly existence too, right? That you're... In terms of time, yeah. Yeah, because you don't get to participate in the the global division of labor so i hear you loud and clear like yes makes all the sense in the world to be self-sufficient but you can do it on a smaller scale right so like yeah. you don't necessarily have to invest in okay i'm going to produce a hundred percent of my own food right you can have a smaller garden and be like i'm going to produce this year 15 percent right right or something so, yeah you and need then I'm some independence make contact with the people that live down there and they're gonna you know grow this stuff and i'm gonna grow this stuff mm-hmm. and if times get hard like we can share or something and then you like build a community that way you know i'm not necessarily an expert in this stuff but ultimately it's all it all comes down to parallel systems from the existing system because if you continue to be in a situation where you're dependent on the existing system and they're going about transforming our world right Right, transforming all of those systems they are going to try and lure you into this new system that is not like the old system at all it's much more predatory and controlling and dystopian than anything humans have ever been subjected to in in our existence as a species so yeah yeah go along for that ride or you start investing in how to not go along for that ride right 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 yeah and it's not going to be the same for everybody Right. Yeah. And that's painful either way. Right. You can either just lull yourself into complacency thinking that we're, we're all wearing tinfoil hats and none of this will happen. And then you subject yourself to the ultimate pain of that dystopian future or you invest, yeah. you know, endure some pain and now your kids. Yeah. and your kids. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, yeah, grassroots political maneuvering, maybe that has some effect, but obviously it's not going to change um, these giant power dynamics that are already in motion. What motivates you to do this work? I mean, you, you seem like you spend a tremendous amount of energy and bandwidth tunneling into these rabbit holes. Like what is your, what's your deeper motivation in all of this? Um, okay. So I guess a couple kind of hard to explain that without getting really personal, I guess Mm. I could say that, you know, when I was, um, uh, a kid, I had a lot of, um, I had very problematic parents, um, and things were really not, um, great. And I was lied to a lot when I didn't have to be. And I was sort of, um, uh, one of my parents did something that was really bad within the family. And I like, they intentionally made me the scapegoat for it. And like, mm. I had to like take all this crap when it wasn't me. So like, you know, it wouldn't be so bad for them and stuff. And so, you know, from that 
experience and other experiences too, where I had like a major lack of trust just in adults. Um, you know, the truth really meant something to me, mm. you know, when, you're, mm. but especially to a young age, at a young age, when you're like exposed to the fact that like adults lie all the time and you know, it, you start to value that stuff a lot more. So wow. I guess, you know, I couldn't report on anything that I didn't think was impactful and I didn't think, uh, needed to be heard by people. Mm. Right. So I guess a lot of my reporting is, is driven by that things that I think are of, uh, public relevance, um, to a large extent. And, and I think a lot of it has to come down with help, trying to help people understand how, uh, the stru these structures really work because, you know, I had those particular experiences like within my family, but if you think of like, you know, like the government in the U.S. likes to frame itself to public school students as like your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And so they like, you know, want you to feel that way about them, but ultimately it's all a lie. So if you actually want to have any, I mean, I don't know, you you have to make the point, like make the choice if you're going to like live in their lies or you're going to find out what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. And um you know, once you make that choice, it's like impossible to go the other way. And that's right. how it's really been for me. It may have just happened to me at like, you know, a much younger age than happens to a lot of people because of like very specific, you know, stuff to, in my case, you know, uh, but it, you know, it developed over time. Like I went in, in university, I took some, um, I can't remember, like a class on the Wild West or something, like a history class. And I thought it was crazy that I'd heard all about the civil rights movement in school, but I'd never heard about the American Indian movement. I was like, why did no one ever talk about mm -hmm. that? <laughs> and, and like all these other events, too, where I was like, that's weird that I wouldn't be taught about that. Um, and, you know, and then you start thinking back and you're like, well, it's weird that in high school, U.S. history classes focus so much on the 1700s and the 1800s. And then they get to the 20th century and they're like, Zoop! And they yep. do it all in like two weeks and they like leave out everything. They leave out like the Federal Reserve. They leave out the Kennedy assassination. I mean, they leave out everything. And it, wouldn't that be the most relevant period to like yes. dig into in a U.S. Right. history class? Yeah. So anyway, it, you know, it, it's all about trying to dispel people of a lot of these illusions that have been uh, imposed on us because um, – I think one of the things we have to break free from is what I guess I would call uh, like the colonization of our minds. Mm. So basically we have been primed through the school system and other systems uh, to be good, obedient slaves to mm -hmm. these guys that are in mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. And so how do you free yourselves from those, you know, theoretical shackles? Right. Uh, part of it is about taking personal responsibility, like we talked about in the beginning, like not looking for these saviors to tell you what to believe or think they're going to fix everything. And then, I mean, they're going to be marching out over as, as a lot of this stuff progresses, you know, new and new faces or uh, different people that they want to fill those roles in our psyches. And we have mm -hmm. to say no. Um, right. And I think um, one of the big shackles uh, and continuing with this metaphor uh would be that we have become slaves to convenience mm. we are so many people are just willing to do whatever in order to stay comfortable right um that i mean there there's at this point you know there's there's people that are so invested in that that they're willing to give up you know ultimately you know their humanity when you look at like the transhumanist mm. stuff and and things right. like that 
in order to maintain the level of convenience to which they have been accustomed. Yeah. And I think it's particularly bad for younger generations. Uh, but this is this is a mental thing. I mean, historically, humans have been mentally much stronger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think, you know, our, you know, masters, the powers that be, mm-hmm. um, have saw how easy it was to entrap people with convenience because of how human history historically has been, right? Yeah. So I think we have to sort of, uh, you know, there's a lot people can do mentally to prepare, right? And um, I think, you know, getting rid of this need for comfort and convenience, um, you know, I, that's the, in my opinion, the main lure that's going to be used to get people into these new systems, particularly the new financial system. Yeah. And it's how they market it, right? Yeah. CBDC, how convenient. Digital yeah. ID, how convenient, <laughs> you know? You'll own um, nothing and be happy. You don't need happy. a smartphone anymore. You can have a chip in your brain. How convenient. Right. You don't have to, because I mean, you know, the smartphone was framed as convenience initially, right? And then they're yeah. like, well, now you don't have to do that anymore. You can just pay by swiping your hand. How convenient. Or, and then, you know, it just, it keeps going. Yeah. And so yeah. we are being led somewhere mainly by convenience that is not convenient for anybody. Right. Ultimately. Yes. No, it's wonderfully said. And I, what came to mind there were, you know, people taking the jab, you know, to just travel or keep their jobs or go on vacation. Right. It's like, it's just con- more convenient to comply. Totally. Often. There's two different groups of people in, in that situation. There's the people that like had to comply with mandates. Cause they're like, well, I can't lose my job because then I can't mm-hmm. feed my family and all right. that. Right. Okay. So that's like one group, but then there's the group that you just mentioned. That's like, well, I want to go to a restaurant you right. know? and yeah. I want to do this. I want to go to the movies. Yeah. So I think that particular group, I mean, you can see how easy it is to get people to, you know, put in, in, in a very experimental, uh, what was called before COVID, a gene therapy mm-hmm. um, into themselves made by very corrupt actors and big pharma. I mean, Moderna and Pfizer have uh, very disturbing pre-COVID histories that very few people seem to uh, know about or even during COVID were interested in. I actually got deplatformed from Patreon for writing about their pre-COVID histories. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, but you look at that stuff and it's like, um, you know, uh, people just don't care because they're like, well, how does that affect me now? I want to go do this thing and this is my ticket to it. And this is yeah. convenient for me. I mean, one of the reasons I left the U.S. too is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in my early 30s right now. So about like 10 years ago, you know, I was with people my, you know own age in the states and was you know seeing a lot of these problems we're talking about now back then um which was kind of lonely to be honest but you know i'd try and talk to people about some stuff of it stuff i thought would be most accessible Mm -hmm. and and usually the answer was something like well as long as i have netflix and beer i don't care (laughs) and i was like all right well we're screwed i'm gonna go to south america because i feel like at least people (laughs) there aren't this retarded (laughs) yeah Well, yeah, it definitely seems like we're in that good times create weak men phase. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the, you know, hopefully these types of conversations are helpful for people, but it does seem like most people learn through the pain. Right. So maybe that's why in South and Central America, people just get it more. What you can do is take the convenience of now to prepare yourself for that time. Right. right? Exactly. So like the Internet's not going to be around forever for people that don't want to go the whole digital ID route, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've made that pretty clear. Because I think the internet is essentially based on like seven or nine servers tops globally. So they like Mm. take over those and it's gone. So, you know, Mm. what you can do now is, you know, information 
that's available that you might need to like grow your own stuff or produce your own stuff or, you know, be economically viable um, or even, you know, stuff you want to educate your kids about. Uh, you know, you can get like ebook versions of textbooks and all the stuff. YouTube mm -hmm. has a bunch of stuff about like gardening, whatever. You know, you can gather all that information, save it on hard drives and like have it there for you. Mm -hmm. when the internet is no longer available to people who choose not to comply. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff we can do now in this time of convenience, right? You can get mm -hmm. solar panels for your house or you can, you know, get a independent water supply, depending on where you live, like a well or something and mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff, little by little that you can start, you know, using like the conveniences of today before yeah. it all collapses, you know, to yeah. make yourself to position yourself in a better way for when that time comes, especially, I mean, I recommend especially doing that when you have a family, mm -hmm. then that like psychological, uh, uh, stress of not having that convenience around will be significantly less for you than it would right. be for someone who didn't try and prepare. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Whitney, this has been just a, a brilliant conversation. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of this, doing this work. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have the determination, I guess, to go this deep into these topics. So very grateful for you doing this work. Uh, where can people find out more about you on the internet? So uh, the best way is to go to my website, unlimitedhangout.com. I mean, I, I don't really have that a big social media presence. I mean, I do have an account on Twitter, but I don't have a Facebook or Instagram or anything mm. like that. My handle on Twitter is underscore Whitney Webb, uh, two mm. Bs in web. Um, but the best thing really is to go uh, to my website, unlimitedhangout.com. Uh, there you can find information about my podcast, which is also called Unlimited Hangout, and that's available on all sorts of podcasting apps. I mean, pretty much anyone that most people use, you know, you can find it. You can find it there. And I talk about um, a lot of themes I don't get to write about in that podcast um, and a lot of other uh, issues. I know not everyone's really into reading anymore. A lot of my work <laughs> tends to be pretty long written wise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have books and I do long form reporting because ultimately, if you're trying to look at power structures and systems and how things really work, it's hard to do that in 500 words, yeah, <laughs> you know, for like sure. really flesh that out for people. So, you know, I'm trying to make some of that available to people in, in audio form for people that aren't really into reading long stuff. But I would encourage people to maybe read sometimes and engage with the source information, because like I said earlier, it's really important for people to engage with the information themselves and just stop blindly trusting people mm -hmm. to them on social media as truth tellers or whatnot. Um, and I honestly, I would encourage people as in, in the not so distant future to really consider getting off of social media entirely. I think it's mm. becoming just an insane psy up battle, uh, battleground. I mean, what we talked about a little bit earlier with chat GPT and open AI, they're saying now that 90% of the content on the internet is going to be produced by chatbots, gener generative AI, wow. uh, you know, by the year 2025. And that's two years from now. So how oh. much of, you know, these accounts on Twitter or any other platform aren't just those and we already know now that chat gpt is like very politically uh is not objective right it like has specific political stuff that it likes to promote so like how much of this is going to be used to alter people's perceptions thinking right. it's real people when it's really just these 
generative AIs that at scale can make it seem like crowds of people believe something. You know, I think it's just about to become a massive psyop machine. <laughs> so I don't know wow. if it's a good idea to really be on there anymore. So with that being said, I would definitely consider people to check out just the website. And if people aren't familiar, this is, I think, a really good way people can sort of break the backs or really break the power that social media has mm. is to get an RSS feed or like a reader app for RSS feeds. Mm -hmm. Because what you do then is that you're basically curating your own newsfeed with sites that you like, and you're getting all of their content in one spot and it's not being manipulated uh, by, by AI algorithms or social media algorithms that of course you know we know by now don't really work well or have big conflicts of interest you know you're it's not censorable and it's coming mm. you know straight to you and you get to decide what's on it and what's not on it so we have that for unlimited hangout and on the website we have like a, an article about how to set that up for yourself but i'm sure people could find it elsewhere but it's definitely time to uh, take charge of your media consumption and not be dependent on these big giant corrupt companies uh, for your access to information that's great. Great feedback and a great idea. Uh, Whitney, thank you again. This was great. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure.